0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. My title today is a kind of strange title, but it's taken from Galatians 1, 6 to 8, and it's the Accursed Gospel. I want to explain the accursed gospel to you, but hopefully we can get the right one in the process. Galatians 1.6-8 I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. I'm going to suggest that the gospel most widely preached in North America is the accursed gospel described by Paul. And Paul's accursed gospel is one that makes the law primary and Christ secondary. So that Christianity is reduced to a contract rather than a covenantal relationship. What to call this gospel is a problem. Some would say it is Lutheranism, but that may not be fair to Luther. So we'll just call it by Luther's term, and that's justification by faith. Both justification and faith, they come to mean something different over and against what the New Testament means by these terms. In this understanding, the Old Testament an Old Testament law, which is, of course, the problem here in Galatia, was thought to be a system in which one is justified or made right in the eyes of God through works of the law. And of course, no one can keep the law perfectly. And therefore, everyone fails to be justified. And this produces feelings of guilt and depression. But luckily, there is the gospel that allows us to be justified not by works, but by faith. And so whenever anyone hears the gospel, I'm describing this false gospel. So when everyone hears the gospel, they are so happy to be relieved of their burden of guilt, which they already knew about, because they already knew about their sin. They already knew about who God is. uh, They already understand their guilt for sin. But now they realize what they have to do is have faith and their sin problem is taken care of. That's kind of a brief justification by faith gospel. Now, there are several problems in this system. First of all, law is the standard or measure for Christ and faith. Rather than Christ completing or fulfilling the law, there is there's a kind of outright contradiction Well, there's several contradictions in this scheme. First of all, there's a contradiction between what people can know. They have great capacity for knowing and almost no capacity for doing. And under this system, everyone, both Jews and Greeks, recognize that God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, and that God is just, and that he has a law which everyone must obey Perfectly, if they're going to be justified in the sight of God. And of course, would Jews have this law in written form, and Gentiles have it just from nature written on their heart. And so, in this understanding, this false gospel, all have capacity to recognize God and His absolute standard, but no one has the capacity to live up to the standard. And this really comes partly from the doctrine of original sin, as we get it from Augustine. And that is, everyone knows enough about God to know his perfect standards, but no one knows enough or has capacity enough to do it or to keep the standard. And so we all know enough to feel really depressed. And our situation is such that when somebody tells us about Jesus we should instantly recognize that Christ died to meet the requirements of the law, and now our problem is solved. And so the question arises as to exactly what law we're talking about. That is, the law which both Jews and Gentiles share. Is it something along the line of the Ten Commandments? Do we expect everyone to know about the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments involves Sabbath-keeping. It involves the details about sexual morality. If it concerns the details of the Jewish law, should we expect everyone to know in their heart that you're not supposed to eat blood? Or that you're not supposed to actually, men are not supposed to cut their forelocks. Or that is everyone going to know about circumcision? We might think it is an easy thing to glean a universal ethical standard from the Jewish law. That is to be able to separate the ethics from the details of the law. But this turns out not to be so easy. Well, maybe you want to say that there's not just one law code, but two. There's the Jewish law code, and then the other one. Douglas Campbell concludes, Either the model must claim that the Jewish law, in all its detail, is derivable from the cosmos, that is, through natural revelation, or it must work with two ethical systems. One, a more general set of ethical principles applicable to all and discernible in the cosmos. And the other, a more extensive set with additional distinctive practices incumbent only on Jews and accessible primarily through revelation and texts. That is, we've got two standards in this idea. You know, throughout, we're talking about retributive justice. So that according to how well people do with the prescribed rules, this will determine their degree of punishment or their degree of reward, maybe. But actually, we don't talk much about reward. It's mainly punishment. But is this retributive justice on the basis of two distinct standards? The Jewish standard and the Gentile standard? That is, we know you've got to keep it perfectly. Well, wait a minute, keep what perfectly? And if there's two standards, it's not clear how everybody is going to be judged. And so there's already a problem in the presumed disjunction between what all people are capable of knowing and then what are they are not capable of doing. But there's also a problem here in that they have these intellectual capacities I just presume that this cannot be the case. Having lived in a foreign country where most people are not exposed to Christianity, I've never met anyone who had the basic understanding that is passed down in justification theory that everybody is presumed to know. Is it really the case that all people can derive the same basic facts about God? About First of all, that there's one God, And that he's omniscient, omnipotent, and that he's righteous. Can you derive that from nature? And can then you go on and deduce the same ethical requirements? And then, though they are capable, very capable of deducing all these things, but then suddenly they're completely incapacitated to do what they know is right. I'm afraid all of this feeds into the false gospel's notion of faith and justice. That is, these basic terms, I'm afraid that we may misunderstand. Again, Douglas Campbell says justification theory posits a God of strict justice who holds all people accountable to a standard they are intrinsically unable to attain. And he says this seems unjust. And certainly, the Bible says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the question is, if the anthropology, the way in which we've described that is correct, or the way that I've just now described it. There's a further conflict in exactly what it is everyone is expected to know, and how this connects to faith. Christianity and Judaism are based on historical revelation. That is, Jesus lived and died and spoke a particular language. You only know that if somebody tells you about it. You can't glean that from nature. Nor can you glean the fact of the exodus of the children of Israel. In other words, that's what we mean. It's both Judaism and Christianity are historical faiths. Yet the presumed universally shared knowledge is not historically specific. It's more of a kind of a philosophical understanding. And so the criteria by which people are judged are universal, yet no one can live up to these criteria. So we have Christianity, but then Christianity and Judaism are both historical and specific. So we have one criteria to condemn and another criteria to save. And then not everyone is let in on the historical details of Christianity because not all have heard. And then the question, I'm creating a problem here. And I think this problem is not as strange to us because this is a gospel that we've heard. We're all familiar with this. And I think this is very much what's happened in Galatia. And of course, what's happening in this understanding is there's a a misunderstanding about the nature of faith. What do we mean by faith? Is faith primarily concerned with, oh, I believe these historical events? Is faith believing that certain information is true and simply that? Not to exclude that. Is it that we believe Christ lived, he died, he rose? and we believe these historical facts, and therefore we're saved. And all we must do is acknowledge these truths, these historical truths. And when we do this, this in some way satisfies God's requirement. Uh, In this system, faith does not seem to address the particular issues that we've just described are the problem. They don't really change people. Faith doesn't change the person beyond... Believing this set of facts. And then we could ask, well, why this particular set of facts? So what I'm describing is this really, what people call the gospel, I'm afraid, is a false gospel that really doesn't hold together. Galatians 3, 24 to 26. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law is set aside. We don't judge Christ according to the law, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The relationship with God that the law could not bring about has been brought about through Christ. The law is not the standard for faith, but faith, trust, and covenant are primary. And so it's not an issue of contract, it's an issue of covenant. And part of the issue in justification theory, uh, maybe it can be placed certainly at the feet of Augustine, but maybe Anselm of Canterbury due to whom we think of atonement in terms of something like a monetary payment required by the law. He begins to talk this way. But the conversion of God's impugned honor into an economy of exchange, first of all, that has nothing to do with the New Testament, certainly not the way that Anselm presented it, And it is not what Paul means by faith, because what this reduces down to is I have faith in faith. Oh, I believe that this takes care of the problem. Now, in listing some of the problems of justification theory, I actually have not touched on the worst example. And that would be Calvinism, in which you have double predestination in which some are saved, and most people are damned to hell. And God does all of the Predestined work here. It's a limited atonement. Christ died only for a few, not for everybody. It's total depravity. Which, by the way, when I say total depravity, all those things that I said that a person is required or they just know by nature, Calvinists still admit that, but then they go on to say, yeah, but the person is totally depraved. They can't do anything good. They could do a lot of really brilliant thinking. But they can't really do anything about it. And not even faith in Calvinism is something that people do. That is, you're just given faith. Because they don't want the person to be able to claim any that faith is a work if we do it in Calvinism. What I'm saying is we end up with another gospel that, as Paul says, is really no gospel at all. And unfortunately, this no gospel, this anti-gospel, this un-gospel, is the predominant form of the faith in this country, maybe in North America. And so let me point out what is just obvious, obviously wrong. Suffering, you know, which is described as a payment, suffering does not right a wrong. The Bible is not about retributive justice, it's about restorative justice, it's about restoration, it's about redemption, it's about relationship. And the two terms, punishment and justice, perfectly good biblical terms, but abstracted from their biblical context and then tied together you know, in this kind of abstraction, totally misses what is meant by righteousness. Dikaisune is a common word that can be translated justice, righteousness. It's not simply a legal abstraction, but it's a description of God. It's a description of the personhood of God, which is shared with humans in Christ by faith. That's the significance of faith. That is that things are made right. God is right. We know he's righteous. We know he's good. And he shares his goodness with us. And so the common understanding misses the biblical depiction of punishment also. As a loving correction geared toward making things right. Geared toward rectitude. Both terms are obscured in being tied to suffering as if suffering is equal to punishment, enacted, you know, as if that is the way justice is restored. I'll make them suffer, and then everything, you know, as if that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. But we're trained to imagine that makes sense because of Anselm of Canterbury, I think, in part. And, of course, these are equated in pagan religion, actually Roman religion, Roman law, have been preserved in modern notions of legal retribution. Our whole legal system, I'm afraid, reflects this kind of basic understanding. And there is a fusion of the suffering of Christ with the suffering of Gehenna, which is never brought together in the New Testament. And this is biblical justice. I I can give you an example of this. You know, if someone... Steals my car. I had a car stolen several years back. You know, and they catch the culprits. They punish them. Maybe they, uh, you know, I don't know, beat them. Now, I might enjoy this. You know, yeah, you know, more, 50 more lashes. But that's probably not a, a good reflection on my character, that I would enjoy somebody being punished And of course, it really doesn't do me any good unless I get my car back. If people are just randomly punished. But in our human perversity, we may link our sadistic sense of seeing our enemies suffer. This is David, you know, he says he'll praise God, break their teeth. He'd like to see his enemies suffer. We may think that's justice. But this is completely removed from the biblical concept of restoration, of making things right, of restoration of the kingdom, a restoration of a relationship. The way of restorative justice, it involves the one who has done the wrong and the wrong committed. It involves not only their reform, but in some way things are made right. Hopefully I get my car back. That would be a starter. But God does not impute, you know, this is Luther's phrase, imputed righteousness, and imputed righteousness is just a legal fiction. That is, it happens on the law books, but not in reality. God does not impute honesty where there is none. He does not presume the possibility of a theoretical or legal reform apart from that person actually being made right. You know, in the Old Testament, the slaves are not theoretically set free. No, they're literally delivered from out of Egypt. Healing is not simply a legalistic reordering of the books, but we're really made right. We're really healed in Christ. And of course, it does not follow that the punishment of the wrongdoer makes atonement for the wrong done. It does not restore what was stolen or the lives that have been lost if it's in in the case of murder. It does not help the situation that the man suffers or that he even volunteers to suffer. You know, I'm thinking of Luther here because this is what he thought. He beats himself on the back thinking that if he causes himself to suffer that this will enable him to be made right. Even Luther comes to understand, this isn't God's righteousness. And suffering per se does not address the problem. Galatians 4, 4 4-5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. Here is what makes things right. Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. There is a system of retributive punishing, you know, a hard burden to bear that we're delivered from. We've been redeemed from this retributive system, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We are delivered from the law, not by fulfilling its demands, you know, making sure that we don't eat the blood and the meat together, making sure we don't cut the forelocks of our hair. No, that's not the way that the law is fulfilled. The law was never complete. It was never an end in itself. Christ then has done what the law could not do. The second thing here is that demanding retribution is not forgiveness. The false gospel pictures forgiveness as enabled by Christ bearing the punishment of the law, or in the case of Calvin, the eternal suffering in hell, that he equates with the suffering on the cross. The demand of the law, according to Anselm and Calvin, is that the offense against an infinite God receive the due payment of an infinite penalty, and that penalty is suffering. And only when the penalty is paid can the offense be forgiven. But wait a minute, that's not forgiveness. In this understanding, only when God's wrath is completely satiated, and of course it never is satiated. Even Augustine talks about witnessing God's wrath forever and ever. Calvin talks this way, even Thomas Aquinas. And only then can he find it in himself to forgive. Well, this is a strange notion of forgiveness, and it's a strange notion of mercy, subsequent as it is to infinite wrath being propitiated. I think the biblical depiction is the opposite, as God's love and mercy endure forever, but his wrath quickly passes. Psalms 35, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalms 106.1 Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalms 118. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Nowhere does it say his wrath is everlasting. Isaiah 12.1 Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Mercy, forgiveness, is a key attribute of God. But the false gospel subsumes mercy under the attribute of wrath as if wrath is an attribute, a prime attribute of God, and it's not. And most of us would not consider it merciful to demand those who have wronged us be executed first. You know, somebody steals my car and they give him capital punishment and say, good, now I'm satisfied, I forgive you. No, that's not forgiveness. It would be considered diabolical. Should we desire that those who have transgressed us be tortured forever, and then we offer our mercy, And that's what's actually being said about the picture of the cross. Paul ends Galatians with a right understanding of mercy over and against the false gospel. Galatians 6, 15 to 16. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. We're not doing the law anymore. But he says a new creation, a new creation in Christ... We've started over. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And of course, who is the Israel of God? It's this new kingdom, this new creation. The law does not pertain to the making right of new creation. This is a new work of God in which mercy is freely given through Christ. And the last one here, God's punishment does not buy mercy, it is his mercy. Punishment, I'm afraid we've got a wrong understanding in the false gospel because it's just equated with eternal suffering, which in no way restores, rectifies, or reforms. But in the Bible, Proverbs 3.12, God disciplines those he loves. And this is the point of punishment that comes with sin. The presumed split between mercy and wrath, you know, it eternalizes God's wrath, though it becomes no good whatsoever. And the question is not simply, how could God be just and not punish sin? That's a good question. But how could God be loving and not punish sin? What parent is, is a loving parent that doesn't correct their child? Of course, that's the loving thing to do. That is that wrath is a subcategory of love. His is a cleansing, purifying punishment, which is synonymous with his mercy and love. God knows how to discipline us in order to purify us. And God is not split between anger and love, but his anger flows from his love. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, we all were by nature children of wrath. He's including himself. But this does not stand opposed to the love of God, but explains how his being rich in mercy, what Paul is describing, extends the love of God, and this solves the problem. And the problem is not God's wrath. The problem is, Paul says, being dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world's prince, being disobedient sons, following the lusts of the flesh. There's the problem. And being children of wrath is a consequence of the problem. The wrath is not the problem. The the wrath is part of the solution. And God is concerned with the problem, not the consequence. God does not hate us in his wrath. He loves us in his wrath like any good loving parent. Like much-loved children of the Father that Paul is describing, his wrath is an element of his love. And so the solution that Paul describes is we're made alive together with Christ. We're made a new creation it tells us that the problem is clearly not that God is angry with us. His anger is actually no obstacle to his life-giving love. It's part of his life-giving love. And indeed, it is subservient to his love. And so we're in the false gospel. Wrath describes the primary problem. It describes the prime destiny which Christ is dealing with. But for Paul, wrath is not describing a destiny or an end point. It's describing a part, a portion of the way. Paul does not mean that people were destined for wrath and that's the end of the story. He's talking about himself. And in this case in in both Ephesians and Galatians, he's talking about Jewish Christians. He means that he and they and we were acting in a fallen way like those who deserve God's wrath. And wrath then, the sons of wrath, it's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Well, it continually the sons of wrath are the very ones who are shown mercy. As Paul says, we are being built together into a dwelling of the Spirit of God. And the way to enter this dwelling is not as in the false gospel, through bypassing or foregoing the divine wrath, as if it's directed somewhere else. No, we need discipline. And so where the false gospel absolutizes wrath, it splits God the Father and the Son. And the passage from wrath to love, you know, it's pictured as like a change in God. But what we've described is no, God is always a loving God. God is one. God is love. He is not sometimes a God of wrath and other times a God of love. As George MacDonald puts this, For love loves unto purity and is often experienced as wrath, as the consuming fire that will not be content until our sinful nature, everything that separates us from God, is burned away. And so the false gospel, I'm afraid, has captured much of the church. The false gospel pictures law, wrath, and payment for wrath as if that is the gospel. This is the false gospel Paul was combating. The false gospel continues to teach the lie in making law, death, and wrath absolute. Christ exposes the lie of sin and reverses this orientation to the law. Slavery to the law, slavery to the fear of death, slavery to the fear of God's wrath. Christ relegates death and the law of sin and death. These are secondary. He displaces them with the truth, his resurrection life. And so let's close Galatians 4, 6 to 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter, a child. And if a child, then an heir through God. And then verse 4-9, the conclusion. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things of the false gospel? I'm afraid we are guilty, very often, of turning back to the elemental law. Paul says, do you desire to be enslaved all over again? God forbid. We have the gospel of truth. Let's adhere to that gospel and not the false gospel. forgingplowshares.org